You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, Season 1, Episode 19. With Citizenship and Immigration Canada making it increasingly difficult to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn for information that can be relied upon. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy. As he answers a wide variety of immigration questions and shares practical tips and guidance to help you along your way. Well, hello there, and welcome back to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Holthy, and I'm coming to you from the beautiful province of Alberta, Canada. You know, this past weekend, I had the opportunity to go riding with a very good friend in our favorite place, Waterton Lakes National Park. And as I was riding my good horse, Joe, the quarter horse, through those mountain trails and uh, through the trees. We just had an unbelievable experience. And as I, as I looked to my left and I could see the mountain range, you know, climbing off in the distance and on the right, another high escarpment of, of rocky face, I honestly feel that Alberta is the most beautiful province in the country. So all of you lawyers out there who are listening to my podcast and uh, want to put a pitch in for how your province is better than mine, well, you can go for it. (laughs) And if you want to leave me uh, a message or share me some pictures, I think we need to have a podcast solely dedicated to the amazing country that we live in. At any rate, I've got so many wonderful experiences that that I've been able to to have over the last little while as I've experienced the wonder of, of this province, the nature, just being away from the office, away from all of the stressful aspects of immigration, and having an opportunity to get away with some good friends and family. My son came along on a ride on Saturday as well, and just experience uh, what it really means to be alive. Um, there's so many stories that I want to share, but really that's not the purpose of this podcast. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into an interview that I did with just one of the the lawyers that I really, really look up to a lot. Um, For the most part, it's because of how entrepreneurial he is. I'm amazed at how he is always evolving, always growing, always changing his practice to really service his clients and to most benefit from whatever immigration program has been created um, and adapting when others are closing. So his whole mindset is how can I help my client to obtain the result they're looking for? And he has a really solid corporate background and he uses that to enhance the immigration services that he offers to his clients. So this lawyer's name is Jeffrey Lowe and he is the founder of Lowe & Company. And as he identifies himself. He is the chief inspirational officer with that law firm. And I had just a wonderful interview with him. Um, I know you'll enjoy it. And we focused our discussion on labor market impact assessments, but not just labor market impact assessments. We drilled down even further to this narrow little area called owner-operator LMIAs. And if you have clients that traditionally used immigrant investor programs or have been wanting to try to uh, immigrate to Canada through the entrepreneur categories, which now have basically been gutted, there's nothing left there. 
Jeffrey offers some unbelievable insight that you're not going to get anywhere on how to use the owner-operator program to create opportunities for your clients who wish to immigrate to Canada. And also, if you have clients, and I know every one of you immigration lawyers and consultants out there have them, who are postgraduate students who have been working on their postgraduate work permits and now find themselves without any opportunity of immigrating to Canada because of express entry, Jeffrey offers some phenomenal insight on how you can also use the owner-operator LMIA to help these clients. So without further ado, let's jump into my interview with the Chief Inspirational Officer of Lowen Company in Vancouver, BC, Jeffrey Lowe. Well, I am here with Jeffrey Lowe. I'm so happy to have him join me here on the Canadian Immigration Podcast. How are you, Jeffrey? Really good. It's a sunny day in Vancouver. Wonderful. Um, I had an opportunity, as you did as well, to travel out to our national conference in Vancouver just this past month, and it definitely wasn't all sunny. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's nice to it's nice to hear that the sun comes out in the summer there, and it's and it's not all just overcast and rain. And uh, but I can tell you in the winter here, when I'm wading through the high levels of snow, that I wish I was out there. Uh-huh. Well, uh, you're welcome to come out anytime. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, let me lead in a little bit here, Jeffrey, with um, with a little bit of background information on you. Uh, Jeffrey uh, Lowe has practiced immigration and business law in British Columbia since 1983. He holds a Bachelor of Law and a Bachelor of Commerce from the University of British Columbia. And I would echo without any reservation that he is most definitely considered an innovator in convergence in the convergence of business technology and law. And as I indicated in one of my prior podcasts, um, Jeffrey has been just a real inspiration to me when it comes to um, just being an entrepreneur within the practice of law. And I had the pleasure of being on a panel with him a few years back called Money Matters, and uh, where we talked uh, about the practice of of immigration from a business standpoint and um, how to make sure we can keep our doors open and <laughs> and uh, deal with the fluctuations that come as, as uh, immigration programs change and we have to adapt and ensure that there's still uh, still work for us and our, and our staff in the future. So that was a real good experience. Well, that was a lot of fun. Now, I remember also that you had referred to me um, uh, a book called Who Moved, Who Moved My Cheese. Do you remember that? Yeah, Who Moved My Cheese... It was an interesting little book. You can read it in a couple of hours. And what it is, is a parable type book, which, uh, which takes you through the story of two little men with big heads and two mice who live by their instinct and they all live in a maze. And it's really all about change management and our reaction to change and the necessity to react to change. And sometimes mice who act by their instincts and are quicker are adapt somewhat better than little men with big heads. So we want to, we don't want to be the little men with big heads. <laughs> exactly. And I think uh, that was one of the things that really opened my eyes to the need to be a little bit more entrepreneurial, but also just thinking outside of the box and not being settled with the way we've always done things. 
and um, your your title as Chief Inspirational Officer of, of Lowen Company, your law firm in, in Vancouver, is very, very fitting and very appropriate. And, you know, when I think about the topic that we're going to be covering today, which is um, labor market impact assessments, but not the traditional ones, we're going to be talking about owner-operator LMIAs, which are not uh, something that has really been commonly used in the past, but that the use of this owner-operator category requires, you know, a lot of outside-the-box thinking because there really is no directives from the government. But um, that is the topic that I wanted to bring you in on. And you also had an opportunity to speak on this topic at our last national conference in Vancouver. And I thought, boy, this is just the perfect topic to bring Jeffrey in on to, to discuss it. But before we get into that, and this is the question that I ask all my guests, how did you get into immigration? Well, that's interesting. When I first started out practicing law in 1983, I did primarily corporate commercial and real estate law. Uh, And I also did a certain amount of immigration because being Chinese-Canadian, we get all sorts of Chinese clients that ask about immigrating to Canada, whether or not they're doing a business deal or buying a property. So I always did a bit of immigration, but it was really in 1989, after 1989, where they had the Tiananmen Square massacre in Beijing. And at that point in time, I happened to be in China and Hong Kong, and all sorts of people came up to me and they said, Lawyer Low, Lawyer Low, can you help me immigrate to Canada? Wow. And I thought, okay, well, I asked a good friend of mine, I said, well, David, they're immigration lawyers and consultants who got kind of a bad reputation for cheating people and for uh, being involved in all sorts of scuzzy things. And I don't want to be like that. And so my friend David says, Jeffrey, that's exactly why you need good, honest, ethical immigration lawyers, because if they don't go to you, then they'll go to the wolves. So that was 1989. And ever since then, our practice has focused on business and immigration law for the last 26, 27 years. Wow, that's that is fascinating. So you were actually in China and Hong Kong during that that period, the uh, uh, when the, the Tiananmen Square massacre occurred. Well, one of the good things about being an immigration lawyer is you get to go to be in different places at different critical points in history. I was in the Philippines uh, in the late 80s, and lo and behold, Ferdinand Marcos was at the airport. Wow. Um, And uh, chairing an investigation as to who killed Aquino. Then in 1997, I was in Indonesia shortly before the race riots began against the Chinese in Indonesia. And then in in Tiananmen Square, well, in, in southern China in June 4th, 1989. So over the years, we've been able to witness some critical events of history, which is, uh, which is quite exciting. That, that, is, that is awesome. That is more than fascinating. That's unbelievable. I know with our modern world now, with technology and everything, you know, the way that we have to, to contact our clients, it's so much less face-to-face now. And, and, so much more virtual, you know, and so those opportunities to, to travel around and, and meet people, they're still there, but you know, our world and the whole globe has shrunk so much that it's, um, 
you know, we communicate so much through virtual means that those opportunities to travel abroad in the same way are, are just not there. So that's, that's amazing. That's fascinating. Mm. Now you indicated that you had assisted uh, a number of your, you know, your Chinese clients to find ways to come to Canada. And obviously with what the government has been doing over the last few years, it's becoming increasingly difficult to do that. Um, even with the overhaul to the temporary foreign worker program and the current review that our liberal government is undertaking as to what they're going to do with the program. You know, I've heard our minister um, uh, that she really doesn't like the temporary foreign worker program. And to some extent, uh, she's hinted that she wouldn't even mind scrapping the thing. Well, obviously, you know, we're going to hope that doesn't happen. But uh, when you think about this temporary foreign worker program, one of these unique little provisions that you have expertise in is the owner operator LMIA. What can you tell us about that? Okay, well, first off, uh, perhaps I'll just back up a little bit. Uh, sometimes I describe myself as an entrepreneur disguised as a lawyer, because I think like an entrepreneur, I think like a business person, and I think about solving uh, problems. So we don't see uh, LMIAs or investors or provincial nominees or NAFTA or free trade as ends in themselves. Rather, we see them as tools to help our clients to achieve their business or professional or, or, or personal goals. One of my favorite quotes is from an author called John Maxwell, who says, uh, policies are many, principles are few. Policies will change, but principles never do. Hmm. And we think about it, um, we're focusing on owner-operator LMIAs today, which is one of the current policies of the day. And I'll explain a bit why I think why I believe this is really important for um, uh, immigration lawyers and business immigrants to know at this point in time. But I'm well aware of the fact that this could change in six months, one year, or even three months. So uh, what I'd like to do today is talk a bit about this and hopefully equip some of the lawyers or uh, business people with some ideas and as to what they could do in terms of coming to Canada, investing in the business, and participating in the management of the business. So let's begin by saying what is an owner-operator LMIA or what is uh, what is an LMIA? <clears throat> a labor market impact assessment is an opinion by Service Canada that offering a job to a foreign national is number one, that the job offer would be genuine, and number two, job offer would have a neutral or positive effect on the Canadian labor market. So that's found in Immigration Regulation 203. And then under Regulation 203, there's things like, did you pay market wages? Did you advertise? Is there skill shortage? And a number of different things. But the the essential principle in 203, or the principles in 203 are number one, is the job offer genuine? And number two, would it have a neutral or positive effect on the Canadian labor market? So that's the basis for development of this owner-operator policy. Now, the policy has been around since at least April 2011, and we used it prior to express entry, but its usefulness only came in or went up exponentially after the advent of express entry and the cancellation of the federal entrepreneur programs and uh, provincial nomination programs. 
So firstly, if, you, if you're acting for a business immigrant who wants to come to Canada, what are their options to come to Canada? Well, they can't use the federal investor program because that's no longer available. Using the Quebec investor program, you need to intend to reside in Quebec and there's limited spots available. The federal entrepreneur program is now closed and uh, the provincial nominee, business provincial nominee programs in various provinces have been overloaded to the point that uh, one might have to wait a long time to get approved. Uh, under the new selection systems for most PNP programs, the, the conditions are somewhat more stringent than in the past. Jeffrey, how long is it currently taking for the BC PNP entrepreneur programs? What's the processing times now? Um, if you submit a new application uh, and you get selected, uh, the goal is to get preliminary approval within about six months, which is not too bad. However, that only gets you a two-year work permit. Then you need to spend at least 20 months operating the business, after which you can apply for the uh, provincial nomination. And assuming you get the provincial nomination, so now you're about two and a half years into this, then if you get the provincial nomination, then you would need to apply to the federal side for um, your permanent residence. So you add another year. So you're looking at about three, three and a half years to get permanent residence through the BCPNP program. So it is uh, not a short process by any means. Yeah, definitely not as attractive as, as maybe. Uh, some of the options that you're going to be talking about today. Right. So, <clears throat> with Express, uh, with the owner-operator LMIA, properly done, if everything goes smoothly, number one, you could get a work permit in two to four months after submitting the application. Number two, once you submit the application, you would get 600 points for Express Entry, so you would likely get selected in the next round uh, under the express entry selection or invitation to apply. And thirdly, uh, after you submit your full application, processing standard is six months. So from start to finish, a person could go through owner-operator LMIA and express entry in about a year. Yeah, that's that's pretty phenomenal when you're comparing it to the old even the old investor program, right? And, and the, the years that it would often take for those applications to go through. So to have an option like this that can, you know, can literally give you permanent residence to Canada in, in as little as a year or possibly even less, you know, that, that's something that definitely people are going to want to learn more about. Mm -hmm. So now uh, let's talk about the owner-operator LMIA. So what exactly is this? We'll look at three different aspects of this. One is, what is the basis for the owner-operator uh, LMIA? Secondly, we'll look at the owner-operator LMIA or LMO policy uh, from April 2011, and let's see what that says. And thirdly, we'll look at some practical tips as to, um, uh, as to how to handle these things. And then lastly, uh, I'll talk about some specific examples and we can see how the owner-operator LMIA would work in practice to help anybody from people on working holiday permits to 
post uh, people on postgraduate work permits to uh, just people who want to come to Canada to start a business. So let's start with the regs. As I mentioned, uh, the main reg is Regulation two two hundred three one, uh, which in which you need to establish number one that the job offer from the Canadian business is genuine. And number two, it would have a neutral or positive effect on the Canadian labor market. So in other words, you wouldn't be taking away a job from a Canadian. What is a genuine job? Well, the regulation 200 sub 5 has a, a few guidelines to determine, or requirements to determine what a genuine job is. Number one, is the employer actively engaged in the business of which the offer is made? So, for example, if you have a startup situation and there's no business being carrying on, that would be more difficult to argue. Number two, is the offer consistent with the reasonable employment needs of the employer? So, for example, if you have a business that is going to be uh, manufacturing and distributing specialized optical equipment. However, you get somebody who is a real estate developer and says, I want to invest a million dollars into this business. You might need money, but you don't need this person's skill. Interesting. So just to stop you there for a second. So they do look a little bit at compatibility in terms of the business plan and whether it actually makes sense for this individual. Uh, yes. Um, in two ways, number one, under 200 sub 5, is it consistent with the reasonable employment needs of the employer? But also, under regulation 200 sub 3, an officer shall not issue a work permit to an individual if there are reasonable grounds to believe that the foreign national is unable to perform the work sought. So that's something to bear in mind. Also, in, in terms of crafting the business plan and the and the role of the person, I'll just digress a minute and go to, into a specific case. We had a case where we had uh, a client who had a chain of pharmacies in the Middle East. He established a pharmacy over here, but he wasn't eligible to become a member of the College of, of Pharmacists. However, we hired a local pharmacist brought him on as a partner. And then the Service Canada officer said, well, you've got a local partner. You've got a pharmacist, licensed pharmacist. Why do we need you? <laughs> uh, and I said, well, excuse me, uh, I'm the guy that writes the checks. Uh, and I run pharmacy businesses for the last 15 years in the Middle East and so on. So uh, you may need to you may need to think about how to address that in your particular case. So how did you how did you deal with that uh, an officer who who was clearly not in a facilitative mindset? Well, that was a particularly difficult one because it was also a startup business. Our client had spent a bunch of money already to establish this new pharmacy with no guarantee of getting the work permit, but he really wanted to come over here. And what we're able to do is to say, well, hey, the pharmacy, a pharmacy portion is just a part of the pharmacy store business. You need a business manager. You need somebody who understands retail, somebody able to deal with suppliers, somebody who understands marketing and that sort of thing, which... Uh, the pharmacist would know in a general way, but not necessarily 
uh, be the best person at that. Yeah, and, uh, you know, and you know what, Jeffrey, that's that's exactly right. You think about how many lawyers I will put myself into that category as well, who um, feel fairly confident in our abilities as lawyers, but when we are then you know charged with the responsibility of managing an office, if you know when we decide to hang up our own shingle and strike out on our own. Oh my goodness, is it is it a an experience of trial by fire? So in your situation there, that's a that's a wonderful way of describing the the importance of, of this owner operator, even though they may not, you know, be be licensed to to actually practice as a pharmacist to to take it down that 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 angle. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you need to really think like a business person and be able to think, okay, what are the here's the here are the guidelines in 200 sub 5 for genuineness, and how are you going to deal with those? The third, the third guideline is, are the terms of the offer terms that the employer is reasonably able to fulfill? And here you're looking at money. Uh, is the business going to be sufficiently capitalized in order to be able to afford to have an owner-operator um, run the business. And lastly, they look at past compliance of the employer with federal or provincial employment laws. This one is a bit of a sleeper, but if you're buying over, if your client is buying over a business which has in fact engaged in some violation of federal or provincial employment laws, not to mention uh, non-compliance with LMIAs, uh, that could negate your ability to get a owner-operator LMIA. So something to take, uh, keep in the back of your head uh, as you look at that. Now, Jeffrey, when someone is looking at a startup situation, how far along do you actually need to go in terms of making actual investments as opposed to here's our business plan, this is what we intend to do? How much skin in the game do they, do they actually need? In most cases that we've done owner-operator LMIAs, we've actually had the client purchase uh, purchase the business ahead of time. It requires a bit of risk, um, and sometimes we'll put together deals where there's there's the ability to sell the shares back in the event that the person doesn't get his work permit. But uh, but that's really much more of a a specific situation, depending on the clients. But here's some of the issues that arise from the regs, uh, because one of the first ones is, is it actively engaged in the business? For And this is the startup issue. Uh, the startup, one startup we did, uh, let me see. The fellow with a pharmacist, I think he pretty much was set to open. So, um, I would say you're, you need to look at the substantial investment uh, in the business already. But substantial investment itself doesn't necessarily indicate that you're actively engaged in the business. Right. So I think you need to, that's one of the issues that you need to canvas with the client to see if they really would be comfortable with that. So one of the practical things that I'll talk about, though, in a little bit is the fact that people can actually come over here, establish business through an LMIA exempt uh, work permit. And then uh, later on, after the business is actually up and running, then apply for the regular LMIA work owner operator LMIA. 
So Jeffrey, you're talking about setting up a, a subsidiary and then doing an intercompany transfer initially. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that's one possibility. So let's say, for example, there's at least six different ways where a foreign national can come to Canada to start a business without an, uh, with a work permit without an LMIA. The intercompany transferee is a good example. Um, foreign company sets up a, a Canadian branch or affiliate or subsidiary and agrees to transfer over uh, either an executive, senior manager, or person with specialized knowledge. That would get the Canadian business up and running. Then you can show that it's real and the business is genuine. Another one, perhaps the one uh, that we use a lot for Americans and Mexicans, are the NAFTA investor work permits. There's no minimum investment required for the NAFTA investor work permit. I've done it with as low as $50,000 investment and as high as about $200 million. That allows Americans or Mexicans to come over to Canada to establish a business and direct the business. Uh, there's other free trade countries. There's at least half, another, half a dozen other countries. Uh, for example, Korea, uh, Korea, Chile, Peru, uh, and a few others, Colombia, where their citizens can come out here to set up businesses. But here's a couple more common ones. Let's say somebody's got a post-grad work permit. They graduated here or from a school in Canada. They have a three-year post-grad work permit. They can't find a skilled job. What are they going to do? If they were to start their own business, we could obtain, they could start up their own business, have between one to three years to get it up and operating, by which point we can show that the business is genuine and then apply for the owner-operator LMIA. You could also do it with a spousal open work permit. Let's say somebody's spouse is studying at a designated learning institution. Then the husband or wife or common-law partner, as the case may be, can get an open work permit for the duration of the uh, original study permit. So, uh, that spouse, again, could get a business up and operating. Once it's up and operating, can then uh, then apply for the owner-operator LMIA. You, I, you can even do it with a working holiday permit. Somebody over here for a year starts up a business and then can apply for an owner-operator LMIA. So, a number of different things that you can do. Now, one question I have, um, Jeffrey... When it comes to this operation, obviously when we have investors abroad, uh, they tend to like the passive investment concept. So, you know, for example, if you have an individual who says, hey, I want to purchase this, uh, this commercial um, piece of land and, and, uh, and basically build it up to turn it over, but it's more of a passive. It's not like they are employing 10, you know, 15 Canadians. It's more, more them working with subcontractors, subtrades. Uh, and so it's more of a commercial, a commercial venture, construction venture. Those types of situations, how, how do you think Service Canada would look at that versus someone who's setting up a factory that employs Canadians and builds widgets? Well, I think you're looking, you need to establish the genuineness of the business uh, and the fact that it would provide and it would uh, result in a neutral or positive effect on the Canadian labor market. Generally speaking, passive 
investments are not would likely not be seen as a as a genuine business. Having said that, if you're involved in a real estate development, which is developing townhomes and town or condominiums, employing dozens or perhaps even hundreds of people, there may be some room for that. But but you really need to look on that on a case by case basis. Yeah, yeah, of course. I want to turn a bit to the Service Canada policy as at April 2011 and a couple of things that come from that. Number one, they define owner operators as somebody who owns, quote, a share, unquote, in a business. They don't specify how much share that person needs to own. They don't share specify how much investment the person needs to invest. I've done it. Most of the owner owner operator LMIAs with between 51% and 100%. But there's nothing to stop somebody from applying with less than uh, less than 50%. And in fact, I'm doing one right now where uh, the client will only own about 10% of the business. However, it's a large business and he's investing a million dollars to establish a new manufacturing division, which will in and of itself hire about seven people. So, so you really want to look at the specifics of the situation, but uh, from a policy standpoint or a regulatory standpoint, there's no minimum investment and no minimum number of shares. You know, that's really interesting that you say that, Jeffrey, because, excuse me, I just got off another call earlier today. Uh, with with another um, group of lawyers, we were just talking about a couple different things. An owner operator ca- owner operator came up, and one of the lawyers said, "I don't traditionally do it for anyone who owns more than fifty percent because I'm concerned that they will consider it self employment." And and you know, um, and somehow I would you know you have the potential of running afoul of of how they interpret it. And it's interesting to, for you to say, well, you usually tend to only do it if they have a, a majority stake in, in the operation. And I can tell you, I've had both situations where there's been virtually 100%, uh, a situation where there was 50. I did one recently here where there was 17% in a very interesting situation for uh, an elderly man who was retiring and he had a specialty uh, shop, um, violin repair and string instrument repair shop. And he wanted to bring his son over to take over the business who was actually doing the same thing in another country. And uh, we were ultimately successful in doing it um, with, you know, very, very little uh, money. It wasn't like that little business was turning out hundreds of thousands of dollars in profits each year. But it just goes to show that, you know, these policies, uh, you know, this and you date back to the 2011 policy, just how open-ended it is and subject to interpretation yeah and and truth be told a lot of uh, service canada officers aren't really that familiar with the uh, owner operator policy because even though it's been around since 2011 it hasn't really been that uh, useful uh, or necessary until after the after express entry um, and so, uh, so truth be told, back in April 2011, I don't know that uh, that the uh, I think it was Andrew Kenyon at, at Service Canada or H, uh, HRTC at the time had given the menu. I don't know if he had term, uh, 
if he had turned his mind to all the different parameters that uh, could happen. And so that's why, uh, that's why you're right. A lot of these things are a bit open-ended. But just a couple other points I wanted to raise on the on the old policy. Um, so there's no recruitment or advertisement required. The emphasis on job creation or job retention. And interestingly enough, they outline two kinds of owner operators. One is the principal owner operator who owns the largest share. And second is the um, co-owners who would own smaller shares or, or equal shares. And the major difference is um, wages weren't assessed for the principal owner operator, but they are uh, assessed for the uh, co-owners. So, for example, if you're starting a restaurant and you wanted to bring in a principal owner operator, you don't need to show that the person is earning uh, so many dollars per hour. Whereas if you wanted to bring in somebody else as a manager uh, and uh, the prevailing market uh, wage was $22 an hour, you would need to show that the job offer to the co-owner was at least $22 an hour. Uh, but I wanted to just come back to some specific examples uh, so that people can see how this is used. So, for example, uh, under the BCPNP, there's a lot of applicants who have applied and have been waiting several years for their PNP to get approved. In the meantime, they really want to come over to Canada, really want to start their new life in Canada, but after waiting three years or more to get processed, uh, they're finding it a bit a bit difficult. And so what we can do, assuming, assuming you get the consent of the BCPNP to the early investment, is we can have or the immigrant come over here and establish the business, purchase the business, and then get an owner-operator work permit for that person. So we get an owner-operator work permit for the principal applicant, and as you know, you get a spousal open work permit for the spouse, and then, uh, and then student status for the minor children. So, very useful tool. You can do that with the owner-operator LMIA. However, if the business isn't established yet, if it's a startup business, then, then I would look at something like an after investor or post-grad work permit or spousal open work permit, some way to get a work permit other than the uh, the owner-operator until you can establish that the business is genuine. Let me turn a bit to the issue of foreign students and uh, Letitia Sue in her presentation at CBA National Conference on uh, Options for Foreign Students um, had mentioned this. Let's say you are a fresh graduate, you've got a three-year work permit, and then you are looking for, uh, you're looking for a skilled job offer to get 600 points. Well, you, uh, so many of these students have applied so for so many skilled jobs and weren't able to get skilled jobs, so they end up working as tellers in banks, which are not high-skilled positions, or retail clerks or, or baristas or that sort of thing. And if they don't get skilled work experience and they don't get an LMIA, then they're likely going to have to go back home. 
And if they've been here for four years uh, with their in-between tuition and living costs, probably spent at least 40000 a year, you're looking at about a waste of about $160,000 uh, over the their $160,000 investment over the four-year period. So what do they do? If they can... Uh, if they can get together, and perhaps mom and dad can help with some funds to invest into a business which would uh, have a good likelihood of hiring people, then with their post-grad work permit, they can open up um, uh, ABC Noodle Shop or um, Johnny's Hamburgers. Uh, invest a bit of money, either purchase or establish a new business, which they can operate with their post-grad work permit. Then once you've got the business up and running, we can show that it's genuine. Then you apply for the owner-operator LMIA. Then you get 600 points, you get skilled work experience, and then you go through express entry. Hmm. So this is... And uh, my the numbers... Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I believe there is around 240,000, 250,000 foreign students in, or people with study permits as at December 2015. Well, as you know, with the immigration processing targets, there's really only about 150,000 skilled workers, spots for skilled workers per year. Between the 250,000 foreign students, another 200-odd thousand temporary foreign workers, I, I believe the total was around 460, 470,000 people here under with study permits or work permits present in Canada at, in, as at December 2015. A large percentage of them would want to immigrate, but if there's only 150,000 spots available, for skilled workers and dependents. Of that, maybe 60,000, 70,000 would be principal applicants. And you've got 400 and, between 400 and 450 and 500,000 temporary students or temporary foreign workers here in Canada vying for those spots. The poor students only have about one chance in nine of being able to qualify to immigrate. And that doesn't include all the people overseas. And I can't tell you how often, Jeffrey, we get those students <clears throat> coming to our office, and I'm almost positive yours as well, and they have no options. They have, like you indicated, they've spent $160,000 to get their education. And then coming out, the only jobs they can get are within food service or retail. And, uh, you know, they could have a Bachelor of Management in Finance. And obviously the banks don't help because they won't support them with LMIAs and sure they'll hire them as bank tellers, but then that's it. So to have this option of obtaining, you know, if you have the capacity to, to invest in a business, I can see this being just a wonderful opportunity for students to consider. And uh, obviously if you structure things creatively so that there is an exit strategy in case things don't work out with the, you know, with the LMIA, this is just a, a whole new opportunity and opening for people that I think anyone who's an, uh, an international student listening to this podcast should pay close attention to. In fact, I'm working with a number of um, franchises and uh, franchises as well as students to try to place students into 
uh, some franchise businesses over here, and the investment might might be anywhere from about about one hundred and fifty to three hundred thousand dollars, which can and because they're food related franchises and open seven days a week, they can typically create around seven or eight jobs. So these are ideal for foreign students. Uh, foreign students or postgrads whose parents can uh, back them with uh, with some investment capital. You can even have one of the students in as a principal owner operator and another student as a co owner operator. Uh, so there's a number of different a number of different ways to put these deals together. So Jeffrey, I just I'm sorry to inter- interrupt there, interject. So you have, I've always traditionally thought of owner operator as one principal and that's it. So so you're saying that you also have success, um, maybe even piggybacking and getting more than one individual involved in you know in in the investment themselves. Um, I should clarify, it's in the policy to allow that. We haven't we're processing one right now, but it's not but. I don't know if it's going to work. Well, what I believe it, I believe yeah, it will work. I think so. Obviously, if you're pointing to the fact that you're able to create, you know, seven or eight Canadian jobs, um, the ratio there works in my mind. Yes, it is quite helpful. It is quite useful. So, anyways, that's just a. And uh, hopefully, that's a helpful overview for you. But one of the things that I. That was stated at the beginning is policies are many, principles are, are few, policies will change, principles never do. And uh, I have no idea how long this, uh, this provision with the owner-operator LMIA um, will be here. Uh, from from my perspective, it makes good sense to have this policy because Canada wants to create jobs. And I believe, properly implemented, this will create far more jobs than the old entrepreneur uh, program used to create because so many people came here and they didn't really do business. Or uh, even some of the old provincial nominee programs. But here you're talking about people who get work permits and need to continue to work here and um, in order to uh, qualify for their arranged employment points. Hmm. Well, that's that's just this has really been uh, eye opening for me, Jeffrey. Um, you've brought up some ways to use these owner operator provision um, that I just had not considered before. And I think of all of the examples that you've provided and and the ways in which you can use the program, uh, like I love this international student suggestion better than any others because. They more so than than other people were were really truly blindsided by the changes with the you know with the inception of express entry. You know, I think none of them anticipated that they would go from a position of being the top choice of the government to being kind of left with the you know being being the scraps in terms of uh, you know the one of the lower options uh, in terms of priorities. So to give them this opportunity, I think, is just and these suggestions and ideas with respect to the owner operator LMIA is wonderful. So I, I thank you for that. Well, good to be here and hope that's been helpful and inter- interesting for you. Absolutely. And for your listeners. 
And obviously, you've had a chance to 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 um, share some wonderful insight with us. But I know for a fact there's going to be many people who are very interested in pursuing this. And if they happen to be in your neck of the woods, there, what is the best way for them to reach you? Uh, best way is just uh, through email, jlo, J-L-O-W-E, at canadavisalaw.com. That's canadavisalaw.com. Well, that's perfect. Well, I'm going to make sure that I put that within the show notes for the podcast. And also, I, I, I understand that you have a little handout. And I was wondering if maybe we could put that, um, uh, put that handout uh, available as well. That's just a, a brief overview of some of the more technical aspects of the of the program um how would you feel about that if we put that up within the show notes as well sure we could uh, i'd be happy to do so perfect well thank you so much jeffrey i really appreciate it uh the insight was was exceptional and um hopefully we can have you again back in in the future okay sounds really good thanks very much mark thanks jeffrey okay well that interview was awesome you know To get someone on the podcast like Jeffrey that has so much experience, much of what we do is relying on our past experience to enhance the immigration advice and direction that we give to our clients. And when I think about the information that Jeffrey shared here, you're not going to get that in any book, on anyone's website, anywhere. And so I want to express my sincere appreciation to Jeffrey for just providing an amazing um, interview for this podcast. And as I go forward and I look at some of the future podcasts that I'm going to be releasing, some of the interviews that I've done, you are going to be in store for some unbelievable insight. Uh, I have topics relating to express entry, uh, international students, tips and strategies for what to do when your visas are refused, There's just a whole plethora of topics that we're going to be covering, and I am super excited to get these out to you. Now, I want to encourage all of you, if you do like this podcast, and it's something that you feel would be useful to other people, then please, please go to iTunes and leave a review. And also, if you have even your own following of of folks on other social media channels, Share the podcast with them. Share the love. Ultimately, this whole podcast is designed to help all of us increase our level of practice, to share insight and knowledge, uh, to celebrate the successes of, of other colleagues across the country who are really practicing at a high level, and ultimately, just to benefit all of the many hundreds of thousands of people that immigrate to our fine country every year. So go on to iTunes, leave a review, uh, go to the Facebook page, like it, leave a review there, follow me on Twitter, all of the social media avenues, and interact. I love to hear from you. I love to hear your comments. If you have ideas for future shows or other lawyers or consultants that you think we should showcase on the Canadian Immigration Podcast, please drop me a line and let me know. So that does it for this episode, number 19 of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Thanks for joining us. And until next time, I wish you all the best in your efforts to navigate this crazy complex web of Canadian immigration law, policy, and practice. So long. 
Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, your trusted source for information on Canadian law, policy, and practice. If you would like to contribute a question for future podcasts or wish to set up a legal consultation with Mark, please visit www.ht-llp.com. your phone.